If you'll open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12, we'll spend, I think, all of our time in the 10 chapters or so surrounding 12. So we'll start there, and that will, you'll be flipping around a little bit, and that's a good spot to start. Let me open us in a word of prayer. Father, I pray a pleading prayer for help tonight, that you would bless our efforts and that you would honor your son. I pray, Father, that you would not only open your word and explain its meaning to us, but you would show how it applies to our lives. Help us to see Christ with more beauty and more dignity, and that we would be more humble, full of praise. We ask this in his name, who died for us. Amen. Well, Danny Hillis is a computer engineer and inventor. Unlike most inventors, the goal of his recent invention was not to make money or to make his life easier. If I was going to invent something, it would be something that would make money. I'm sure of it. I've not given it much thought, but I don't think I need to. He wanted to inspire. So Mr. Hillis invented a 10,000-year clock. What is a 10,000-year clock, you might say? Well, it's a clock that instead of ticking every second or every minute, it ticks once a year, right? So the way the clock is designed, I don't know exactly, but like the minute hand only moves once a year, and then the big hand, I guess we can't call it the hour hand, moves every 100 years, right? And when it does, once it gets to 100 years, a cuckoo bird comes out of the clock and goes off. And there's another element of of this strange design. The clock is designed to run for 10,000 years. And then I guess it stops, right? The gears go for 10,000 years. Okay, so every hundred years, the, uh, it goes off, and then the cuckoo goes off for 10,000 years. Which means that Mr. Hillis, the inventor, will not live to hear the cuckoo go off even one single time. Of course, we might ask, is he cuckoo? <laughs> Why in the world would someone design a clock like that, right? Well, for Mr. Hillis, the clock was more of a statement, more of a, uh, a protest, a, a work of art than it is anything. He said that he built the clock to help people regain perspective, to help people think about the future. He wanted to inspire people to start projects that would outlast their lifetime. To think about what would happen in the future. To use their time well. To be faithful. But I want to use that clock, that strange clock, as an illustration to think of something slightly different, right? So the clock is set to go off for the first time in 81 years. In 81 years. So just think about it. Between now and then, can you guarantee that you will be faithful? Maybe another way to put it would be something like this. How certain are you that over the next 81 years that you will be absolutely faithful to your word and faithful to your commitment to follow Christ? How how confident do you feel? 
What about the next cuckoo? Year 2200. Where will you be then? Oh wait, we, we can't even exist that long, much less maintain faithfulness. When we study the major covenants of the Bible, one of the key things that emerges that should stand out and speak loudly to us is the faithfulness of God. A God who is faithful to his word. A God who enters into covenants we've seen with sinful people, not because we're great, but because he wants relationship with us. And he does so looking at the calendar. God looks at the calendar and he says, I will be faithful to my everlasting word. The covenants of the Bible show us that the character of God, unlike my character, unlike your character, is stable. My character changes when I get mildly hungry. If I don't have caffeine in the morning, I fall apart as a person, (laughs) right? God's character is stable, and his covenants show us this. I love how this is expressed in Deuteronomy chapter 7. I think we've brought this up several weeks in a row. Just listen. The Bible says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and who keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Now we are continuing tonight our series where we have been looking at each of the major covenants of the Bible in turn. We're taking something of a break in how we normally structure our Wednesdays and looking at major themes, right? We're doing this, looking at covenant as a part of a broader series, right? Leave it to the preacher to have a series within a series, right? Um, Within a broader series where we're thinking about the themes of the Bible that knit the Bible together, Themes that God has placed in the Bible that aren't easiest to see in just one text, but in multiple texts. In other words, we're zooming out some to see how the Bible fits as a unified whole. God did not give us 10,000 individual verses, but a word knit together and unified by one author. And one of the major themes that we have seen is that God is a covenant-keeping God. Or maybe we could put it like this. Man is a covenant-breaking creature, yet God is a covenant-keeping God. We've already looked at the covenant of creation. Last week, we looked at the covenant with Noah. And tonight, we are looking at the massively important Abrahamic covenant, which appears all the way from Genesis to Revelation, all throughout the Bible. Which begins in Genesis chapter 12. So hopefully you're already there. And while you're turning there, let me just remind you what comes right before Genesis 12, which is 11, right? And in Genesis 11, we, where we ended last week, we read of the Tower of Babel. Where after judgment, the judgment that God brought on through the flood, because of the wickedness of man's heart, what do we learn at Babel? Judgment doesn't fix people. Man is no better than before the flood. Which is why the covenant with Noah is so important. Perhaps you'll remember that in the Noahic covenant, God promises that even though the world is full of sin, 
And that even though that stirs up incredible indignation and wrath in God, God mercifully, graciously promises that he will tolerate sinners for a season. That's what that rainbow reminds us of in the sky. That God has temporarily put down his weapon of destruction against sinful humanity. He does this so that he can provide a stable atmosphere so he can work redemption. Remember Genesis 3.15. This comes up all the time. Right? I've referenced it every single week in this series. Where God made a promise to Adam and Eve that through the seed of man, He is going to raise up one to crush the head of the serpent and in doing so reverse all the awful curses that sin has brought, namely death. So we're waiting for that serpent crusher. But God can't do that if he keeps wiping out all the sinners. There wouldn't be a single seed to to reach maturity. So once again, in the midst of increasing evil, God intervenes and calls a sinner. Last week, he called Noah. This week, he calls Abraham. Let's read these important verses, Genesis 12, 1-3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now remember, just like Noah... We need to be very careful to note that God did not call Abraham because he was good. He did not call him because he was righteous. Neither Abraham nor Noah are the good guys shining amongst the bad people, right? Abraham did not have faith until after God called him. In fact, the Bible is careful to point out that not only did God not call Abraham because he was good, but God called him in spite of the fact that he was bad, in spite of his badness. In the book of Joshua, Joshua reminds us that Abraham was an Abram, okay, I'm going to use all right, we get that. Abram was an idolater. Like it literally says, when Abram was living in Ur, he worshiped other gods. When God called him, So God is calling an idolater. He didn't, Abraham didn't give a rip about the living God. And in fact, this is the kind of person that God always calls. He always calls this kind of person because this is the only kind of person there is. The person, the kind of people that God has to choose from. And so just like Noah, Abraham, as we saw last week, is presented something like a new Adam. And we don't have time to go through all of it tonight, but you can look back through it if you want. From Genesis 3 up to Genesis 9, we have five major curses. Curse, curse. Remember, God created the world and everything is blessing, 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 blessing. And then suddenly we have sin and we have curse, 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 curse. Five major curses until we get to Genesis 12. And in Genesis 12, you'll notice that now we have five big blessings. 
You can count them if you like in just these three verses. Five blessings that God promises to bestow on Abraham. And it becomes becomes apparent that God has chosen Abraham to reverse the curse. That somehow through Abraham, God intends to bless creation again. Not through Adam. You remember there's a blessing for Adam. God intended Adam to bless the world. But he failed and brought curses. And so now God is going to use Abraham. There are three major promises that appear in this covenant that God made with Abraham. Now the covenant with Abraham actually spans multiple chapters. Primarily chapter 12, chapter 15, and chapter 17. So I'm going to kind of summarize. But we see all three of these elements, all dimensions of this promise that God made uh, to Abraham in these first three verses. Now we are teaching our children this. It is so central. Um, And just so you know, if you do not remember this, I might remind you someday that my four-year-old, my three-year-old, knew this when she was barely three. Okay, so you can learn it. We, in our house, we remember this by saying, God promised to Abraham, land, children, blessing. And they chant it, land, children, blessing. Can you say that with me, church? Wake up, land, children, blessing. All right, now that I said that, I'm going to change the order around and add some different words because you're not children. Let's first think about this element of children or nation. Lots of children. In verse 2, you might have noticed that part of God's promise, and it shows up again and again, is to make Abraham a great nation. Now, what is a nation? It is a lot of people. In fact, later in Genesis chapter 15, God tells Abraham how many children he'll have. His descendants will be as numerous as what, church? The stars. The stars. In chapter 17, God calls Abraham the father of a multitude of nations. Not nation, nations. Interesting. Which implies that there's, God is going to work to create some sort of organized government. Some sort of structure. Some sort of rule of law. Some sort of leader. A king, perhaps. In fact, that's what he says in Genesis 17 where God tells Abraham, kings will come from your loins. The nation that comes from Abraham, however, will be different than the nations we have seen. What's the most recent nation we've seen in Genesis 11? It's the nation of Babel. So Abraham's nation is going to be very different than the nations of the world. Babel to make a kingdom, a nation, that's all about man. For man, by man, about man, glorifying man. I don't need God. Adam actually did the same thing in the garden. We don't need God, we've got man. Namely me. And I'm really smart. I'm smarter than God. I know it's best. A snake told me so. Right? He overthrew God's government. Yet this nation that comes from Abraham will be devoted to God. 
and they would be successful. You don't have to turn there, but listen. This is important in Genesis chapter 22, verse 17. Listen as I read this. God says, so he repeats his covenant again and again and again. He says this in 22, 17. I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. Listen to this carefully. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. What does that mean? Have you ever, you've read all these verses before. Have you ever wondered what they mean? It's a good thing to do, reading the Bible. What does this mean? What does that mean? Kings will come from Abraham, and they're going to possess the gates of their enemies. What does that mean? It means that they are going to conquer their enemies and rule the world. Now, if you're not making the connection yet, let me start to make it for you. God has promised, remember Genesis 3.15, a seed. A sperma is the word, right? A seed. And that seed is going to conquer the ultimate enemy, Satan. All right, I'll just leave that there and let you start making some of these connections, right? No, Adam and Eve. Remember the many kings in the garden? Remember God made them to be vice regents, little kings? They failed, and now God is promising Abraham a kingdom that's full of kings, and those kings are going to rule the world and defeat their enemies. Hmm. Wonder who those kings could be. Well, God wants to make one thing very clear. This promise of children, this promise of a kingdom, will not be accomplished by the work of Abraham. In fact, God makes it very clear, Abraham is not very good at having kids. Remember? We'll talk about that in a minute. He makes it clear, to drive this point home, Abraham's wife is barren. Can't have children. And God makes him wait a long time. You remember, when Abraham does have a son, Isaac, who's he marry? He marries Rachel. Guess what? Rachel is also barren. That's interesting. The story begins, the story for lots of children that are as numerous as the stars begins with two barren women. What do you think God might want to teach us? Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. God's making it clear. This will happen, but it's not going to need you. I don't need you. You will need me to make it happen. Even though God is sometimes seemingly very slow to fulfill his promises, by the time we get to Exodus chapter 1, just one book in the Bible, we see God's fulfilled this promise in a massive way. Remember, Exodus began telling us, but the people of Israel were fruitful. <laughs> and increased greatly, and they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Wasn't it uh, Pharaoh's daughter's maiden who was like, those Hebrew women, they're very vigorous in childbirth, right? I read that, I'm like, God's fulfilling his promises. I don't know if that has anything to do with it. Um, okay, but let's move to this promise of land. So that's the promise of children, or nation, or kingdom. They fit together, but let's think about land. God also promised Abraham a promised land. We sang about it tonight, a future promised land. It's theology built into that. Remember, the story of Abraham begins with Abraham being called to leave his land. 
God says, leave your land, go to the land that I will show you. God had a new place for him. Again, I believe that Abraham is portrayed as the new Adam. And so ultimately, he's being called to a new Eden. A place where God dwells with his people. A place for God's people to dwell. But in the meantime, Genesis 12, 7 tells us that land has a name. And the name is Canaan. It's a land that sounds like Eden because it's flowing with milk and honey. That sounds like Eden. It's full of abundance. And I believe that God fulfills this to Israel on multiple levels. I'm going to be controversial for a moment. But in one sense, he uh, fulfills this by freeing Israel from Egypt, right? You can't be a nation if you're enslaved, and you can't have a land if you're in someone else's land, right? So he frees them from slavery and fulfills that promise partially. But in another, better, bigger, more full way, which is God's pattern in the Bible, bigger, better, more full, um, he does this through Joshua. Remember the conquest? Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, right? It's fulfilling this promise. And then it reaches a peak under King Solomon. In 1 Kings 4, we read, Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and the border of Egypt. And they all, the nations, brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. In other words, God fulfilled his promise to give Israel land. They had all of it right? Okay, think with me for a minute. How long did that last? You remember Solomon? Remember his hundreds and hundreds of wives and their gods and how Israel began to go after other gods under? So, so God fulfills the promise, the very same king, and they go astray. And what happens? They're exiled. What's exile mean? They were kicked out of their land. Even though God partially regathers them and brings them, in a sense, back to the land, Israel never really returned to the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. Not like they did under Solomon. Now, some think that these promises mean that God is going to fulfill this promise with ethnic Israel and that we should base our foreign policy around this. But I think that that is missing the point. Because we need to think of these terms, uh, these promises in terms of bigger, better, fuller, right? I believe that God has already fulfilled this promise to Israel, giving them this physical land, but he has something so much bigger in store, like a new heavens and a new earth, a new promised land that we sing about tonight. Okay, wink, wink. Ask me later. All right, the third part of the promise, this universal blessing. Land, children, blessing. We say it, the blessing, but if you don't get it, that's fine. Genesis 12 verse 3 says this, And you, all the families of the earth, shall be blessed. This portion of the covenant was given and then repeated to Abraham and to his children multiple times, to Isaac and to Jacob. God is picking up on blessing language. In fact, he uses the blessing language that he used in Genesis. Okay? To Abraham, this is what he said. Well, actually, in Genesis 1, he said this to Adam. And God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And then what did God say to Noah? 
God blessed Noah and his sons and said to him, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Hmm. And then God blesses Abraham in the same way, saying, I'm going to bless you. And how many kids am I going to give you? Forget the earth. We're filling the stars now, right? As many as the sand on the sea. The point is this. God intended to bless Adam, but sin ruined it and brought on the curse. God intended to bless Noah, and through Noah the whole world, sin ruined it, brought on curse. So what does God promise to Abraham? I'm going to fill the earth with your children. And those children, those nation, those people are going to be a blessing to the whole world. God will succeed in his worldwide blessing. There's nothing that... Sin is not going to win anything ultimately from God. He's going to get it all back. God will succeed. This is a major theme throughout the Old Testament that we can't really go into tonight. But God, we need to see this, that God's covenant with Abraham is not primarily about Abraham and it's not primarily about Israel. He has worldwide purposes, which even include the enemies of ethnic Israel. I'll skip lots. There's lots of examples about the Psalms and the prophets. They're all talking about how all the nations will come praise you. Let the nations praise you, O God. Let the nations be glad. Okay? See, I said I'd skip it and I didn't. But I'll go ahead and tell you this. This blessing is realized in some small ways all throughout the Old Testament. This promise of a blessing. But ultimately, let's just go ahead and say it. This is fulfilled in Christ who blesses the whole world. We'll get to that more in a moment. But God's covenant with Abraham is bigger than one chapter. And so it spills over into some of these other chapters. So I want to talk briefly about the covenant in chapter 15 and then briefly in chapter 17. So flip over to chapter 15. You see why I couldn't do all these in one night? First I was like, I'll do all the covenants in one night. Chapter 15, verse 2. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house, Eleazar of Damascus. Have you ever felt like this, right? You've got these awesome promises from God, and yet... The circumstances in your life just don't seem to match, right? God's made these amazing promises. I have a plan for you. I'm going to prosper you. And yet, life doesn't seem to go like that. I think Abram felt like that. So many years had passed and no child had come. And so Abraham assumed, Abram assumed, that God's promise was going to be fulfilled through a relative, this guy Eleazar. But God reassured him by pointing up to the stars. Look at verse 5. God brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to. And he said, So shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham's faith, right? So God's making a promise And then it says that Abraham's faith didn't make him righteous, but it was credited. It was counted to him as righteousness. 
It's a pattern that we've picked up on in the last couple weeks, and it's strengthened throughout the Bible, that God's pattern for salvation comes through faith and righteousness. Abraham's righteousness comes not from his work for God, but his trust for God to work. And at this time, God reaffirms his covenant with Abraham. It's not a new one. Some people think it is. But it's the same one. And you remember, we talked about this in quite a bit of detail. You remember the gory sermon, right? Where God tells Abraham to cut up a bunch of animals and then to seal the covenant, God himself passes through it. We saw that that means that God himself was calling down a curse. Theologians call this a self-maledictory malad- malad- oath, right? Bad things are going to happen to me if I don't fulfill this covenant, God says. He vows to annihilate himself. God himself says, if I don't keep this covenant, I will annihilate myself. So passing through those animals meant. Okay, let's stop for a minute and think. At this point, what kind of covenant is this? Is this a covenant of works? Or is it a covenant of grace? So far, it seems to be a covenant of grace. God is the one doing the covenanting, right? Abraham, the descendant, the world, receive blessings. Let's hold that thought. Genesis 16 tells us the incredible story right after God talked to Abraham and pointed to the stars. What does Abram do? Well, he and his wife get impatient, so they have this great idea. How about you go sleep with my servant? I always wonder what, how Abraham responded to this. That's a... Te- hmm, right? I don't know how that works, but either way, Abraham and Sarai come up with this horrific plan which leads to this debacle where Sarah gives her husband to Hagar and Ishmael is born. Their attempt to force God's hand to keep his promises. Well, God rejects their pitiful plan and rather than wiping them off the face of the earth, right? (laughs) I think that would be a pretty good reason. Rather than wiping them off the face of the earth, uh, he actually renews his covenant again. Again. That's what Genesis 17 does. Look down at 17 verses 1 through 5. When Abram, when Abram was 99 years old, that is well past the prime age of childbearing, I'm told. Well, uh, 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant uh, between me and you, and you may multiply greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I'm making you the father of a multitude of nations." Now, we don't have time to go through all this in detail tonight, but here are the highlights, right? No surprise, God rejects the Ishmael plan, like, that's not even plan B, that's like plan L or something. And then he changes Abraham's name and Sarah's name to reflect this new identity as father and mother of a lot of people. And then he basically just repeats all of his promises that he made in chapter 
12 with and 15, but he gives us some clarifications. Essentially, God doubles down. In the face of sin, God doubles down on grace. Wow, what kind of God is this? One of the things he does is he re-emphasizes that this covenant is everlasting. Which is incredible in light of chapter 16. It's incredible in light of what Abraham and Sarah just came up with. One example, look down at 17 verse 7. God says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. So how long does this covenant last? It's eternal. All of their offspring. But it gets interesting here because one of the biggest additions... Significant additions here is we have this covenant sign, a sign of circumcision, which seems to be listed as a condition of the covenant. Look down at chapter 17, verse 13. Really, it starts before that, but verses 9 on, God is saying that he's going to establish every male should be circumcised. Uh, I'll start reading in 13. Both, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant, listen, be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Okay. What have you ever want have you ever had these moments in church where like why are we talking about this like this is weird circumcision major part of the bible there's actually a fair amount of graphic detail here but have you ever wondered what does this mean how does this work for those of you who have been too embarrassed to ask what is circumcision we read about it in verse 22. What a strange time to come in. All right. Uh, in verses 22 and following, it says, all right, we understand this is what happens. The, the flesh of the foreskin of the male anatomy is removed. Okay? Verse 13 says literally, so that my covenant shall be in your flesh. Okay? That's very graphic. What's the deal here? Because I mean, this is strange. To take off the fact that you may have been in church your whole life and have heard circumcision your whole life. And let's just think about this for a second. What does this mean? Well, there are a number of different dimensions to circumcision. And we're not going to go into all tonight. But let me just make this even more awkward. Why that body part? Okay? Like, part of circumcision is that it sets those people apart. Why not the earlobe, right? You could set apart by changing the earlobe. Why that body part? Okay, now think about this in light of the covenant that God has made with Abraham. A big part of it is children. God is going to give children. And even the miracle babies that he provides come through the normal means of male and human female procreation. And so circumcision becomes a very physical reminder for the male and a reminder to his wife. The nations, 
that are going to descend from Abraham, the nations that are going to descend from his children, are not because Abraham is a stud. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's not because of his strength. It's not because it's virility. It's because of the grace of God. God even gets credit for that. Do do you see? Can we talk about this? Abraham, who is the father of nations, is only a father of nations because God did it. And he gets the glory for it. So we should praise him for that. Circumcision is a reminder. It's a way to remind everyone, this is God's work. We have these moments, um, you know, as parents, if, if you're a parent, you have this moment. I've looked at my wife sometime, and we're looking at our children, and I'll say, we did good, didn't we? Like, look how beautiful kids, right? And she, reminding me, God did good. I'm like, oh, I know, but come on, let me have my moment. Right? We, we, that was really true for Abraham, right? God did good. Do you see? So what is Abraham's role in all this? Got one more thing we got to do before I wrap this up. Because this is where things get a little tricky. At first we said, this is a covenant of grace where God does all the work and all the keeping. Remember, God is the one who passed through the animals. God is the one who said he will bear the curse of a broken covenant. So in one sense, it's unconditional. Grace. But there's another sense of where the, where the covenant with Abraham was very conditional. I had conditional elements as well. If you think back to the beginning, what did Abraham have to do to get this party started? Leave your land, right? He had to obey. It required obedience. We read in chapter 17, verse 14, that those who are not circumcised break the covenant. That's a condition. And then it gets even clearer. Flip over to 18, verse 19. So what God says, it says, For I've chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Look at these next two words. So that the Lord may bring to Abram what he has promised him. Okay, so God is emphasizing that the promises to Abraham depend in large part on him obeying and his children obeying. Did you see that? So that, verse 19. The promises to Abraham in some way depend on obedience. And not just his obedience, but the obedience of the coming generations. Okay, now this is starting to sound a lot more like creation, right? The covenant of works. Especially if we view that Abraham is this new type of Adam who's going to be obedient and his obedience helps the whole world, blesses the whole world. And of course, we can't, we can't forget the famous testing with Isaac in Genesis chapter 22. I'll quickly, let me read this. Just listen. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your only son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate, again, of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Listen, because you obeyed my voice. Okay, so do you hear how essential obedience here is? Because you obeyed my voice. The blessing comes because Abraham obeyed. 
So what do we make of this, right? And in light, especially in light of Israel's history, give me just a few more minutes and we'll wrap up, okay? What do we make of this? Because we can't overlook either element. We can't, like on the one hand, God says this is an everlasting covenant. And he promises to pierce himself if he breaks it. He prom- God promises to take on the curse if the covenant is broken. But then on the other hand, human obedience is required if these promises are going to be realized. And of course, all throughout the history of Israel, Moses, David, all the prophets, Micah, when the people sin, what do they do? They plead with God, don't forget about your covenant with Abraham. So how, how does this fit together? What do we make of this? Who is responsible? Who is going to make this happen? Does man have to be obedient or is God going to make it happen? How does this work? I think we have to affirm both. The covenant is unconditional. God is the only one who took on the curses and he said it's everlasting. It's unconditional. And it's conditional. Man must obey. They must circumcise their males. They must worship and obey in righteousness. And as we know, Israel failed and brought on covenant curses and they were exiled. So how in the world is this covenant ever going to be fulfilled? Unless. What if? What if there is a way for God himself... To provide a seed, a man, a child of Abraham. And what if this child of Abraham was perfectly obedient? And what if this child was also God and was able and willing to take on the curse, was able to pass through and willing to pass through those torn up animals and take on the curse of humanity's broken covenant? What if there is a God-child man who is obedient and pierced? What if somehow God could provide and be the obedient, faithful one and be a faithful God who bears the curse? Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 reads as follows. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. And of course, the story immediately moves to another woman, and guess what? She's barren. But this time it's different. Because she's barren because she's a virgin. She hasn't been spoiled or corrupted by the corrupted seed of man. So we'll end like this. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Father, help us to see the beauty of Christ as he keeps and fulfills the covenant you made with Abraham. Help us to leave here tonight, maybe with our heads spinning, but with the nuisance of all that you have done it. We ask this in your name. Amen.